And I have such gratitude to God, but also gratitude to Dr. Eleanor Stump that she would be with us today. Dr. Eleanor Stump is a professor of philosophy at St. Louis, St. Louis University, where she's been teaching since 1992. But her very lengthy, lengthy professional career is something that I couldn't describe to you uh, in any brief amount of time. I do want you to know that my uh, reason for wanting Dr. Stunt to be with us is that she really speaks to us about the wonderful mystery of who we are and how God has made us. And we do get an insight into something of the beauty of the wonder of our Creator, the Lord God Almighty. And through her speaking, I believe you will leave today more aware of the beauty of how God has made us the invitation of God that is given to every single preacher who he ever created, and ultimately what our destiny is. All of that is wrapped in what Dr. Stump will say to us. She has written articles and books, and some of the titles of which really fascinate me, The Problem of Suffering, uh, basically Knowledge, Freedom, and the Problem of Evil, the problem of evil and the desires of the heart. I know you'll find, as I said to you, come today with an open heart, that Dr. Stump will truly speak to your heart. Without further ado, I have the great honor of presenting to you Dr. Eleanor Stump. So I'm grateful to Sister Mary Kathleen for that very generous introduction, and I'm grateful to all the people who helped to make this talk possible, and I'm grateful to you for coming. So today I'm going to tell you the bad stuff and the good stuff. We're going to start with sin, which is the bad stuff, and then we're going to uh, move on to finish with the Holy Spirit, which is the good stuff. So with that very short introduction, I'm going to begin, but I would like to know from the people in the back if you can hear me. If you can hear me in the back, raise your hands. Oh, okay. Just, just being sure. Okay. All right. So we're going to begin with Aquinas' ethical theory because Aquinas, not because Aquinas is gospel, he's not, he's human, but he's just very smart and very clear and so he's helpful. He's a, he's a friend, you might say, on the road. And he, he has put into very clear terms for us how to think about what a morally excellent life is. Morally excellent life, the way he helps us see it, has to do with relationship. It doesn't have to do with what you can do altogether on your own as an isolated individual. It has to do with relationship. In particular, it has to do with love. Everything that makes a human life good, everything that makes it excellent, everything that makes it moral, has to do with love. And the primary relationship of love is the relationship of love between God and a human being. I once saw on the front page of a local newspaper a picture of a woman carrying a big stick with a sign that said, Jesus loves you. She was protesting at an abortion clinic and the 
newspaper recorder caught her in the act of taking her sign and her stick to hit over the head of a woman who was trying to get into the clinic. <laughs> Just something to keep in mind. <clears throat> yeah, it was, I'm sure, in that case, painful love. So what Aquinas says about the nature of love, this is what I really, really like about him and his theory. What he says is, it consists, love consists in two mutually governing desires. Now notice he's not talking about feelings, he's talking about desires. And you might think to yourself, well, you either have a desire or you don't. That's just the way it is. But that's not quite how it works. That's not quite how desire works. So you'll see it right away if you think about vegetarianism. So uh, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm not a real vegetarian. The real vegetarians love, love, love to eat meat, but they don't do it for ethical reasons. Whereas I, on the other hand, I think about meat this way. You, you want me to put the muscle of a dead animal in my mouth and chew and chew? Oh, I don't think so. I can't do that. So that's the two different kinds of desire. When I think about desiring meat, I can't. Sorry, it won't happen. Not going to happen. But the, uh, the vegetarians, who are the real ones, they're the ones who desire not to eat meat as an act of will. See what I mean? So there are desires that you can will to have. That kind of vegetarianism you can will to have. If you wanted to will to have my desire about meat, you couldn't do that. You either got it or you don't. But you can will to have a desire in the way those real vegetarians desire not to eat meat. So that's the kind of desires we're talking about, the ones that you can will to have. And love consists in two of those desires, one for the good of the beloved and the other one the desire for union with the beloved. I don't mean by union the sort of thing that uh, trashy romantic novels want you to think about. I mean being at one with, so that you can have this kind of union with your patient if you happen to be a caretaker in the hospital. You can be at one with that person, want not to be alienated from them. So that kind of union is a union that is a matter of being in harmony seeing your life connected to the life of the other. That's what we're talking about. So all the virtues, all the rest of the ethical life is a function of love in one way or another. It's expression of love. In fact, without love, Aquinas thinks, the Bible thinks, I think, without love, there can't be any moral good in a human person. But with love, all the other virtues are present too. We'll talk more about that in the second lecture. And that brings me to the bad stuff, sin. So I want to talk not just about any old sin, but the ones that are called deadly in the great Christian tradition. They're called deadly because they will kill your soul if you don't repent them. I don't mean to say you've got to sit around and think as hard as you can about every time you committed a sin, remember what it was, try to figure out if it was deadly or not, and then repent it. I just mean you've got to turn your back on those attitudes. You've got to turn your back on those attitudes. A deadly sin is something inside you that breaks relationship with God, and it will kill your soul. It will keep you from union with God in heaven. Why? Because it destroys relationship. It destroys love 
between you and God, and it destroys love between you and other human persons too. Now you think to yourself, hmm, what would that be? Well, I'll show you. There they are. There are seven deadly sins. That's because the great Catholic intellectual heritage loves numbers, and seven is one of their favorite ones. So there's seven deadly sins, and you will see at the top of the screen, I made you a handy mnemonic device. Pusoggle. Do you think you could say Pusoggle? Come on. Pusoggle. Okay. One more time. Pusoggle. Now you never, ever have to forget the list of the seven deadly sins. Pusoggle, and they're in order. Pride, P, E, Envy, W, Wrath, S, Sloth, A, Avarice, G, Gluttony, and L, Lust. Pusoggle. So there you go. There's your list. And they're ordered from worst to least. Contrary to what we in this country generally think, lust is not the worst. It's the least. It's the least. They're ordered in this way because they go on the basis of what you love more than the God you should love the best. In lust, you love another human being and you're willing to break God's laws for the love of that human being. But a human being is still made in the image of God, so you're, you're off the mark, but not that far. By the time we get to gluttony, you're willing to break God's laws for the sake of food. That's a step further away. When you get to avarice, you prefer inanimate material possessions to keeping the laws of love. That's even further away. When we get all the way up to pride, all you really care about is your own small self, and that's why that's the worst. So pusoggle. Say it one more time, and you'll never forget it. Pusoggle. There you go. Okay. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Okay. So let's start with pride. There's four kinds of pride. This is a beautiful list. It works so nicely. The first kind of pride is thinking you have an excellence you don't have. I am the best basketball player in the world. Well, you know, maybe on the block. Maybe in the church league. How about that? This is a childish kind of pride. It's a pride where you say, I'm the best there ever was, and everybody around you thinks, oh my gosh, it's just so tiresome listening to him. So that's a childish kind of pride. It's the simplest kind. And then, here's the second kind. It's thinking you have an excellence you really do have, but thinking you got it for yourself. So I've got a buddy. This is the truth. I've got a buddy who made it big in Hollywood. His kid made it big in Hollywood. And his kid says things like, I'm doing lunch with Denzel Washington. And this kid says, everything I have in my life I got for myself. And I think, kid, you're nuts. I mean, I was there when he was born, you know. His parents fed him, clothed him, housed him, nurtured him, worked hard to get money to send him to the fancy schools that allowed him to go on to make it big in Hollywood. Everything he has he got from somebody else pretty much, you know. He lives in a land at peace. He has good health. He thinks he got those for himself, you know. So this is the pride of the self-made man who doesn't recognize all the contribution others have made to him. Then there's a more complicated kind of pride. It's thinking you have an excellence you really have, thinking you have it because God gave it, not because you got it for yourself, thinking God gave it to you, but 
thinking God gave it to you and not to her because God knew you would make good use of it and she, dumb schmuck, never would. <laughs> That's the third kind of pride. And then here's the fourth kind, the most sophisticated and in a sense the most damaging. It's thinking you have an excellence you really do have. Dante thought he was one of the greatest poets in the world and that wasn't pride. He did have that kind of excellence. So thinking you have an excellence you do have, thinking you have it because God gave it, thinking God gave it because God is good, not because you're so nice. But, but, being glad the other guy doesn't have it and trying to make sure he doesn't get it that's the pride of the Pharisee who says, thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men, not like this dumb tax collector, where you know that Pharisee would have been so sad if that tax collector had reformed. That's the worst kind of pride. That's the last and the worst. And now you can see what true humility is. These four kinds of pride tell you what true humility is. True humility is recognizing everything excellent in your life as a gift rejoicing in it as a gift and wanting to give it on so others can have it too. You might think to yourself, wait, wait, if others have it too, I'll have less of it. I don't like that. But see, all the really great goods worth having do not diminish when they're distributed. Pizza diminishes if you distribute it. If I share my pizza with you, I have less. And that's why pizza is just a little good. But knowledge is a great good. It doesn't diminish when you distribute it. I don't get stupider by lecturing to you. And that is why the great goods given by God can be passed on to others to share the gift you have been given and you don't have any less when you do that. So that's pride. And now we come to envy. Envy is unreasonable sorrow at another's good. Unreasonable sorrow at another's good. So sometimes you can have sorrow at another's good and it isn't envy, it's perfectly reasonable. When Hitler won the battle against Poland, that was a kind of good for Hitler and all decent people sorrowed when he did. They sorrowed over what he did in Poland. That's not envy. Envy is unreasonable sorrow at another's good. It's when the other guy gets a raise and you don't and you kind of can't bear it. Think about it all day long. Why did he get the raise? Why did I get the raise? I deserve it. He doesn't. Now we have envy. And the interesting thing about all these deadly sins is that they have daughters. I myself would have said they had sons, but then I wasn't around when we um, made these lists up. <laughs> and so on the old list, the deadly sins have daughters, and the daughters are really worth paying attention to. So here are the daughters of envy. When you see the other guy has something good and you can't really stand it, then here's the first thing that happens. There's what they call telling tales. What's the usual word for telling tales? You know? Gossip. gossip. You got it. It's gossip. It's gossip. Gossip is when you tell something bad about somebody to anybody who will happen to listen. And why do you tell it? Because you have pleasure in the bad of the other person. That's why. There are times when you tell something bad about somebody to another person because you've got to. You have, you have a duty to do it. So you have to say, 
look, uh, I'm really sorry to explain this to you, but this particular professor is coming into his freshman class as drunk, and something has to be done. You have an obligation to tell that kind of bad, but there you're telling it not because you take pleasure in tearing the other guy down, you're telling it because something has to be done and you have a duty to help do that thing. But when you tell it just because you're enjoying telling the bad about something else, that's gossip. And guess what? Gossip is a deadly sin. So I don't know if you like this kind of line, but I love it. Gossip will damn your soul to hell forever if you don't quit it. I love that line. Do you know why I love that line? Because we are invited by God to be the best we can be. And a gossipy person stinks. And God is not willing to let you stay in a condition that stinks. And so if you, if you are willing to accept being loved by something beautiful in holiness, then you are going to have to accept a kind of wildness of love that says to you, that is not acceptable. And that's nice. I like that. It makes me happy. So you shouldn't worry. You shouldn't worry about uh, going to hell. You should just rejoice in being called to avoid gossip. So there you go. Then there's detraction. Detraction is when you say the gossipy thing out loud in a public stage. When you're willing to tell it from the stage in the newspapers, on the TV. That's detraction. And then here's the bottom two, easy to understand. Joy at your neighbor's misfortune. The, the rat had a car accident. Serves him so right. Wish it had been worse. That's uh, a deadly sin too. And grief at your neighbor's prosperity. That's a deadly sin too. Why are these things deadly sins? Because all moral excellence, all moral excellence comes from love. And if you have joy at your neighbor's misfortune, do you want the good for your neighbor? I don't think so. If you have grief at your neighbor's prosperity, do you want the good for your neighbor? I don't think so. But then you don't love him. And love is the heart of all moral excellence. So that's why those are deadly sins. And now that brings us to wrath. Wrath is an unreasonable desire to hurt the other guy, to get him. Now, there are some times when you have a desire to hurt the other guy, and it's not wrath. So, my long-suffering daughter-in-law said to the two-year-old, she said, Johnny, if you throw your pizza on the floor one more time and hit your sister one more time, you are getting no more dinner, and you're going to your room, and that's where you're going to stay. And he looked her in the eye, and he threw his pizza on the floor and hit his sister. So his poor mother picked up the little malefactor, removed him from the table, and put him in his room, and then everybody listened to him scream for a while. <laughs> that was a desire to punish the other guy, but it wasn't unreasonable, and it didn't count as wrath. So just punishment isn't wrath, but an unreasonable desire to punish the other guy. I don't do any popular culture, but probably you do. Did you ever see The Princess Bride? Oh, yeah. yeah, and everybody knows what that guy says. My name is Nero Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He's been chewing on this a long, long time. That's wrath. That's wrath. Okay. So wrath has three species, and this is good to know. There's the choleric wrath. That's when you're constantly exploding. 
Uh, you say, excuse me, but where, where did you put the coffee? I am so sick of your asking me where I put the coffee. You can find it. That's choleric wrath. That's it. Then there's sullen wrath. What's the matter, sweetheart? Nothing. <laughs> Won't you tell me what's the matter? Nothing. There's nothing wrong. That's sullen wrath when you just won't let it go. You're not going to tell. You're not going to engage. You're not going to work it out. You just Because if you did, you'd have to let go of the wrath and you don't want to. You're chewing on it and it tastes good to you. And then there's rancorous wrath. That's the Inigo Montoya wrath where you're willing to wait for 30 years plodding carefully until finally you get him and then you're going to kill him. So those are the three kinds of wrath, not the daughters, the kinds. And here's our daughters. Indignation, swelling of the mind, clamor, contumely, blasphemy, and quarreling. Okay. They're on your list. You don't have to write them down. You know, I gave them to you on the list. So, so it works like this. Indignation is when you by yourself in your mind keep thinking and thinking and thinking about what the bad guy did. Just over and over. You're kind of obsessed with it in your mind. Swelling of the mind is when you're not just rehearsing in your mind what the bad guy did, but you're rehearsing in your mind how to get him. The next time I see him, I'm going to say, well, I see what you spent your two widow's mites on, don't I? And so on. Thinking about the clever line that will really put him down. That is swelling of the mind. And then anger in words, that's what gets us uh, clamor. Disorderly speech when you're just really saying mean things out loud to the other guy. And then contumely, that's a nice word. I really like that word. Contumely is a word that goes with humiliation. If you like seeing the other guy humiliated, if that gives you pleasure, then what you got is contumely. So contumely and humiliation come together. The words come together too. The word humiliation comes from a word that means low, and contumely comes from a word that means hill. When you want to get up on your hill and push the other guy down, you've got contumely. That gives you pleasure. It's contumely. And then there's blasphemy. That's when you're mad at God and you're willing to say mean things about him. Not, not when you're just mad at God and you're calling him to account. That's not blasphemy. It's when you're saying mean, wrong things about him. See, Job said, God is wrong to punish me. And the comforters around Job said, Oh, how can, you, how can you say things like that? And when God came on the scene, God said, Job is the only one who said the right thing. Protest against God can be something that God approves. He disapproved of the comforters. He was so mad at the comforters, he made Job offer sacrifices for them. So, so sometimes protest against God is right. But mean things against God... Mean things against God is what blasphemy consists in. When you, when you say as the Israelites did, you know, you read in your psalm today about the Israelites who hardened their hearts at Meribah and Massa. At Meribah and Massa, the Israelites were thirsty, and they said, "Is God among us or not?" That's the blasphemy. God is always among you. 
You might not like what he does when he's among you, but he is always among you. And then there's quarreling. That's when it's not just in your mind or in your words, but it's in your deeds. When you're, um, I, you know, in the dentist's office, I read ladies' magazines, and they sometimes have these sections where the jilted woman in the love relationship tells what she did to get even. And some of those things are really amazing. You know, I put his toothbrush in the cat litter box and put it back on the shelf. <laughs> That's quarreling. That's what that is. So there you go. There's the daughters of wrath. Indignation, swelling of the mind, clamor, contumely, blasphemy, and quarreling. And now you know what those words mean. And now that brings us to sloth. Now, you might think to yourself, sloth is laziness or idleness, but that would be completely wrong. Idleness is not a sin. Maybe a bad idea, but it's not a sin. And uh, laziness is not a sin either. Maybe a problem, but it isn't a sin. This is a sin. Here's what it is in its official description. It's an oppressive sorrow which disparages the good things God has given us and neglects to do the good out of weariness. So let me show you what it looks like. I knew a man once who was a priest, and he smoked and smoked and smoked and smoked and smoked, and he didn't live in St. Louis, in case you think I'm thinking of talking about somebody local. He lived far, far away. He smoked and he smoked and he smoked and he smoked. And of course, you know, and everybody loved him. Everybody just loved him, and so many people depended on him, and you knew with that amount of smoking... He was really harming himself. And I said to him, Lent is coming. Lent is coming. Give up smoking for Lent. And he said, I can't. That's sloth. That is what sloth says. It looks at the good that there's there to do in your life. I could diet. I could exercise. I could be nicer. I could have less TV. I could be less addicted to my cell phone. I could stop having an affair with my neighbor's wife, I could do any of these good things that I need to make my life beautiful, but I can't. Or, here's another one. I'm so depressed I can't get better. I'm so neurotic I can't get better. I'm so fearful of planes I can't fly. I can't. And that's sloth. Of course you can't do anything good on your own. What did you think? Pelagianism is a heresy. Everything good in your life is given by God. You don't do anything good on your own. Nobody's called you to work to be your own Savior. Christ is your Savior. All you're called to do is let go and say to God, I won't resist you. Come into me, help me. And if I fail, help me again. And if I fail again, help me again. And as many times as I fail, help me again. I can if you do it in me. I can't is the sound of sloth. It is, in the end, a refusal of joy. It's a refusal of joy. It says, i got to sit down in the middle of the road of my life and curl up in the fetal position and take care of myself and everything in my life is bad. I'm just going to go out in the backyard and eat worms. That's sloth. And here are the daughters of sloth. Sluggishness with regard to the commandments. 
You're called to honor your father and your mother. And if you are possessed of a particularly vile and evil father and mother, you may think, I can't. I have to stay away from these horrible people. And you may have to protect yourself from them in some way, but you still have to fulfill the commandment, honor them. Then there's wandering of the mind after unlawful things. I had such a bad day. I really just need two Krispy Kreme donuts to make me feel better. Actually, four. (laughs) That's wandering of the mind after unlawful things. Then there's faint-heartedness. Well, I was going to start. I was going to start a program of daily prayer, but oh, I don't know. It just seems so hard to. I mean, I just don't know where I'd even find the time. That's faint-heartedness. Then there's spite. You think, well, she seems to think she's so holy, but you know what? But you know what? If we caused her the slightest bit of trouble, we'd see she's just the same ordinary person I am. That's spite. That's when you're not getting anything out of doing something bad to somebody else, but you like hurting them anyway. That's spite. And then there's malice. Malice is when finally in the end you say, I can't get anything good in my heart and in my life. So you know what? Evil be thou my good. That's a satanic line. When finally, in the end, you just take pleasure in whatever bad thing you can do. Now, you might think to yourself, oh, that sounds terrible. I would never have malice. Really? I sure? You know, malice is when you take pleasure in something bad. Something bad. Your enemy trips on the rug leading up to the bathroom and falls, and you think, yeah, good, good. That's malice. That's malice. Anytime you take pleasure in something bad that happens to another person, you've got malice. And finally, there's despair. See, what sloth is, is a kind of embryonic despair. When it says, I can't, it's refusing joy, it's refusing love. And if that embryonic despair grows and gestates and becomes full-born, What it is when you finally give birth to it is despair. And despair says, I am not among God's people. This story may be beautiful, but it's for other people. God never understood what my problems were. If he'd understood, he would have known this story's not for me. Sure, there's forgiveness for everybody, but not for me. And sure, there is grace that lets everybody live a holy, chaste, continent loving life it's there for everybody but not for me I mean I you you don't know anything about how my early life began you don't know what struggles I've had it's not for me that's despair that's despair and that's what sloth grows into if you don't nip it in the bud and then there's avarice now avarice in its you know standard ordinary meaning is an unreasonable desire for acquisitions. But that's really not the right way to think about avarice. Avarice is the counting sin. Humans love to count things, and they feel better if they can count more of them. And it doesn't really matter what you're counting. How many times you say the rosary in a week? Did you count them? How many miles per gallon your car gets on average? 
Does that make you feel really good? Here's an example of the counting scene. So my husband and I were in charge of the little tiny grandchildren, and the little malefactor Johnny wouldn't put his shoes on. Uh, if he didn't have his shoes on, we couldn't get his sister to school. And we had to get her to school because we couldn't let her be late to school. And the little guy wouldn't get his shoes on. We couldn't take him without his shoes. And I confess to you, we are not allowed to hit the grandchildren. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the question was, how do you get the little guy to put his shoes on if you can't threaten him with hitting? What do you do? So I got a pad of paper and a pen, and I said to him, Johnny, if you don't get those shoes on, you're going to lose 50 points. Now, I want you to know that I just made this up out of whole cloth. These points are not connected to anything. There's no point system in his house. You know, he doesn't get ice cream if he gets so and so many good points or lose, you know, TV time if he gets so and so many bad points. These are just points connected to nothing at all. I said, Johnny, if you don't get those shoes on, you're going to lose 50 points. And he said to me, Nana, you wouldn't. <laughs> I said, yes, I would. <laughs> those shoes were on so fast. This is stupid. <laughs> Every counting sin is stupid. You know, if you can count lines on your CV if you're an academic, or how many miles per gallon your car gets, or how many days it's been since your dog pooped inside the house. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're counting. If you're making yourself feel better by counting, you're looking for comfort in the wrong place. That's avarice. When you're focused on yourself and the things you can count, you're closed in on yourself. And then what happened to love? You're supposed to be not closed in on yourself counting things, but open to love. Because it's love between you and others, love between you and the Lord that makes for anything good in your life. And counting gets in the way. And then here's the daughters of Avarice. Here they are. Insensibility to mercy. That means if what you're focused on is counting, then you will notice that if you give them some money, there will be less money for you. And your desire to keep counting the money for you makes you insensible to the need for mercy for them. So the desire to keep makes you insensible to mercy. Then there's restlessness. That's when you always have to get more. I would love to come to your birthday party, but... Um, I'm actually busy writing my umpteenth paper, and if I don't write the umpteenth, I'll have umpteen minus one papers on my CV, so I can't come. That's restlessness. When you always got to get out there and do something more. I have shot so and so many wild animals this hunting season, but I need one more. I would come to dinner at your house. I would take care of your child for you in an emergency, but I actually have to keep hunting because I need one more animal, one more dead animal this season. That's restlessness. Then there's falsehood. That's when you lie on your taxes. Because if you were telling the truth on your taxes, you'd have to lose more of your money. And you prefer to lie and keep your money. So if you're willing to engage in falsehood, where did you get that? Where did you get that beautiful bracelet? Oh, someone gave it to me. Actually, no, you picked it off the table at the store where you thought somebody had left it. And it doesn't belong to you. You could have turned it in, but no, you like it. So you decide to keep it and then tell a lie about how you got it. So there's falsehood. Then there's perjury when you'll even lie on oath. That's when you say, that's when you, you know, 
you're asked, how come you're late to dinner? And you say, I had to work late at the office. And you're asked, really? And you say, God damn it, I told you I had to work late at the office. That's perjury. That's perjury. On oath, on oath, because that's what that swear word is, it's a kind of oath. On oath, you lied. And that's worse than falsehood. And then there's fraud. I mean, you can actually engage in do actions that keep you more possessions. Then there's violence. I'll shoot you to get your money or hurt you in some other way to get something to keep for myself. And finally, there's treachery. When you betray people who counted on you, betray their trust in order to get more things for yourself that you can count. So those are the daughters of avarice. We're almost, we're almost at the end here. A little, we've got two more to go. So there's gluttony. Now, uh, gluttony is not something we think of as a sin in this day and age. We think of it as a challenge or something that you need a personal fitness coach for or something. But actually, here's a lovely and cheerful thing. It is a mortal sin which will damn your soul to hell forever if you don't stop it. That is a cheerful thought. Nobody is going to hell who doesn't want to go there. That's the system. That's the system. Love is there for everyone. Grace is there for everyone. Forgiveness is there for everyone. Help is there for everyone. You just have to not shut your mouth against it. Open your mouth and God will pour in love and grace. There is nothing that goes wrong in your life that you have to accept and live with. You can ask for help, and the help might be painful, and in this life it might not finish getting you all the way to the place where you want to be. No one exits life morally perfect. But the grace will pour into you and the love will pour into you if you open your mouth and let it. And so everything that you don't like in your life can be something that you and God together begin to see forward. And that includes gluttony. Now the thing about, the thing about uh, gluttony, you need to understand here, I already know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm attacking every overweight person in this room. <laughs> but that's not it. Gluttony is, n- is not really... Um, it's not really best thought of as the sin of overeating. It's best thought of as the sin that is trying to comfort yourself by yourself on whatever system works best for you. So little tiny children operate on this system. Little tiny children operate on this system. They try to comfort themselves by themselves and how do they do that? Thumb in the mouth. When my son was four years old, he said to me, Mama, he said, do you know that four-year-old people can hear God? And I said, moving very carefully, I said, yes, I'm sure they can. And the four-year-old said to me, yes, and as soon as God tells me, I take my thumb right out of my mouth. You don't think that's funny. I thought it was wonderful. (laughs) 
God is always telling you, take your thumb right out of your mouth. You are to be comforted in the Lord, comforted in the people the Lord has given you, comforted in the church God has given you to sustain you. Those are the things that are supposed to comfort you. And if, when you need comfort, you put your thumb in your mouth, then we have gluttony. Anything where you, anything where you comfort yourself by yourself and make sure you can do it by yourself and other people not helping you, we have gluttony. Bars operate on this principle. I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm talking about human company. If you go to a bar, you can get human company at will without having to invest anything of yourself in that company. You have socializing just whenever you want it. And it doesn't cost you anything because you don't have to form a real relationship with the people in the bar. And guess what? Recreational shopping works just like that too. You're feeling a little lonely. You could build a real relationship with another human being of some kind and get the real human company you need to live and thrive. But it's really very risky to do that, challenging to do that, frightening to do that, so you go shopping instead. You talk to the lady next to you at the shoe place. You talk to the sales lady at the cosmetics place. And now you've got some human company at will and doesn't cost you anything You're comforting yourself by yourself without letting anybody else into your life. That is a way, just as avarice can be thought of best as a counting sin, not just about money, but about anything you can count, gluttony can be thought of best as an attempt to to comfort yourself by yourself. Smoking is a kind of gluttony. You could, if you're really stressed, say your prayers. Invite the Holy Spirit into your life. Talk to your priest. Talk to your friend. Anything. But instead, you go have a smoke. So you can comfort yourself by yourself at will. It feels better. I'm not denying that these things are addictions. They are for sure they are. Smoking alters the neuroanatomy of your brain, and when you don't smoke, it's not that you smoke to get a pleasure, it's that you smoke to avoid a pain, because once you become addicted, if you stop smoking, you have pain, and that pain is hard to deal with and makes you feel you have to have a smoke. I'm not denying that these things are addiction. I'm just pointing out that you can have an addiction, have something that's an addiction, it can still count as a sin. Why? Not because you can just say no the way Nancy Reagan said. You can't just say no to an addiction, but you can go get somebody to help you with it. That you can do. You can ask God to help you with it, and you can go to look for human help also. So here's what it looks like. Here's what the, here's what the species of uh, gluttony look like um, on, the old, on the old tradition. It looks like this. There's forestalling the hour of need. Do you know what our name for this is? Snacking. <laughs> Forestalling the hour of need means the hour, you're not actually hungry. You won't be hungry for quite a while. I mean, do you actually remember the last time you were hungry? I mean, really hungry. Do you remember the last time you were hungry? We don't eat because we're hungry. We eat because we want to put something in our mouths for comfort. Snacking is when you graze around the kitchen, graze around, you see somebody else is having a reception and you sidle over to see if you can steal a cookie. Not because you're hungry, 
You're just grazing. That's forestalling the hour of need. That's what that is. Then there's seeking costly meat. I was sitting next to somebody known for his Christian piety, fervor, and devotion. Sitting next to him at a restaurant. And um, the server was explaining to him that the special wine which had been offered at this restaurant on sale, which he was quite interested in, was no longer available. And he scowled. And he looked at the floor. And he said, well, that is very disappointing. I think, really? (laughs) Disappointing is when the refugees drown. It's not when you can't get the fancy wine you were hoping for at the restaurant. That's seeking costly meats. And then there's requiring dainty cooking. This is sort of my favorite. I am the last of the great picky eaters. You say, um, we'd like to have you over for dinner. What, what do you eat? And I think, don't have me over for dinner. Don't try, okay? Just never going to work for you. <laughs> I don't like this and I don't like that. I eat mostly only this and that and the other thing, but not those and not those and not something else. You know, um, so, so if, you're really, if you're really a soupy, if you're willing to be mean to somebody because they can't make a proper cup of tea, then that's the sin. That's the sin. If you're willing to be very disappointed because you didn't get it the way uh, you wanted it, that's that sin. And then, of course, there's our all-time favorite. There is no single human being in this room who hasn't been guilty of this one sometimes, taking too much. Taking too much. I have a weakness for birthday cake. If you invite me to a reception where there's a birthday cake, I will take the piece you give me and then sidle around when you're not looking, see if I can get one more. That's taking too much. And then there's having the heat of an immoderate appetite. That's where you don't even care if somebody sees you. You're just going to eat the whole cake. That's how that goes. (laughs) And then there's, uh, so that's our species. Here's our daughters. Here they are. Unseemly joy. So you know what that is. The guy is on his third on his third cup of wine and he can't stop laughing at his own jokes. And everybody else is embarrassed. That's unseemly joy. Then there's scurrility. That's when uh, you're not laughing at your own jokes. You're telling jokes to other people and they're dirty. That's what that is. Uh, then there's uncleanness. That's when you've had so much to eat. You went to the ball game. You had the hot dogs. Well, tell the truth. You had actually three of them. And after that, you had, uh, you had uh, ice cream. And after that, you thought you'd chase it down with popcorn. And now, all the way home, you're throwing up. That's uh, uncleanness. Then there's loquaciousness. So you know what that is about, right? You know what that is about. Somebody has really let down all his guard, become completely uninhibited because he's eaten too much, drunk too much, and he just can't shut up. He's just talking and talking, and he doesn't notice that everybody else wishes he would go away. That's loquaciousness. And then there's uh, dullness of mind. That's, of course, when you've had so much to eat or so much to drink, you're just stupid. You just become stupid. And everybody else has got to kind of put up with you and hope you're better in the morning. So that's uh, gluttony. 
And that brings me to the last one, and then we'll also be at the 45-minute mark. So here's our last one, lust. So lust, um, lust is probably the one thing we understand best in this culture because we're obsessed with, with sexuality in our culture. Lust is a matter of having the having sexual desire for somebody with regard to whom you shouldn't have that desire or having the desire in a way that gets in the way of love for other people. In Dante's Hell, there are two great adulterous lovers, Paolo and Francesca. And Francesca was married to somebody else, Paolo was married to somebody else, and they found each other, and they had a long-term uh, sexual relationship. And in Dante's Hell, Francesca's explaining that, you know, Dante's wondering, why did a nice girl like you, Francesca, wind up in hell? And she says, well, it's just that Paolo loved me so much. He loved me so much. And now you have to ask yourself this question. If you're getting somebody to engage in a behavior that separates them from God, put them on the path to hell. Are you sure that's loving? Is that what you would do to somebody you cared about? If you say to somebody, I love you so much, I know we're, I know we're, we're married to other people, I know if the priest says to the child, I love you so much, any of those cases, where you claim to be loving, but in fact, if you think about it for half a heartbeat, you can see what you're about to do. Even your words, I love you, put somebody on a path to total ruin and destruction in their life. You don't have love. No. No, you have malice because you don't care what happens to the other guy as long as you get what you want. So that's the nature of lust. Somebody I know got a young woman pregnant, somebody he wasn't married to. And I took him aside privately to say to him the harshest things I could think of to say. And this is what I said to him. I said, if you ever hurt another woman like that again, what I will say to you, you will remember all your life. And that's the right attitude. That's the right attitude. I was loving the person he hurt. He was hurting the person he should have loved. See what I mean? That's, that's what lust is. It's a willingness to, to bring ruin and pain and suffering into the life of another person because you get to gratify some each of your own. So here's the daughters of lust. Here they are. Blindness of mind. I don't know if this is the part of the old tradition that made people think masturbation made you blind. I don't know. But that's not what they're talking about. That's not what this means. It means a kind of intellectual stupidity. Let me show you what it looks like. The pastor of some church asked me to talk to a guy who was divorcing his wife to marry somebody younger. So I went to talk to him, and he wanted to tell me his story. His wife had become overweight. She was dowdy. She was not accomplished. 
she wasn't interesting or exciting to him. And he found this young woman who was beautiful, athletic, engaging, accomplished, had a career. And he was happy with her. And what he said to me was, I don't think God wants me to be unhappy. Do you? And I thought, what an idiot. <laughs> what an idiot. I didn't say it, but I sure thought it. What an idiot. Because, because the way he was seeing the world is God didn't want him to be unhappy, but God didn't care if his wife and his children were crying their eyes out because God didn't care if they were unhappy, just cared if he was unhappy. See what I mean? That's blindness of mind. When you get that stupid, you're even willing to utter a dumb sentence like that and not think about what it sounds like in somebody else's mind. That's blindness of mind. And then there's thoughtlessness. You can see how it goes. Inconstancy, that's where you're not faithful to the relationships you should be in. There's rashness, when you give way at a moment's notice to something that you could have paused, held back, thought better about in the morning. There's self-love. That's when you care more about yourself, but you don't care about what happens to Francesca. She winds up in hell. That's not your problem or your fault. You just loved her. That's, that's self-love. Then there's hatred of God. You get sunk into this sin and you will not be able you will not be able to see to want to see the face of the Lord. You will want to turn away. You won't want to look at him. And why? Because you don't want to see yourself in his eyes. That's why. And then there's love of this world, where you think to yourself, Well, let's eat, drink and be merry, because tomorrow we're gonna to have to face it and we don't have to face it today. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's have a good time. Let's have fun. We having fun? We having fun? Everybody having fun? That's love of this world. And then despair of the future world. Because all these attitudes come with an underlying attitude on your part toward yourself. You think it's a beautiful story. Christianity is a beautiful story. Christ's death on the cross for each of us is a beautiful story. And it's there for everybody, but not for me, given what I've done. That's despair of the future world. And guess what? It's not heroic. It's just another dumb sin. If you think you're noble because you think to yourself, I'm, I'm tragically evil. I have sinned. I am a, a, a tragic figure in the story of my own life. Heaven is not for me. There's nothing noble or tragic about that. It's just more stupid and more sin. Because whatever it is, the sins are in your world. Guess what? God doesn't care. He wants you to come to him. And for that purpose, all you have to do is surrender to him. He'll work at getting the sin out through you and with you. So there is nothing in your life. Nothing whatsoever. Not lust, not gluttony, not avarice, not sloth, not wrath, not envy, not pride, not any of the pusaga ones that are keeping you from heaven. The only thing keeping you from heaven is you won't acknowledge you've got them and surrender to the Lord and say, help, I need help. Come help. That's how that works. So that's our talk on the bad stuff. And you now have a 15-minute break.